Welcome to the Ask JP podcast. Uh, this is, once again, uh, another episode in our criminal justice reform series where I'm interviewing a series of candidates who are all running for a variety of different uh, offices relate in regards to the criminal justice system, some for judge, some for district attorney. Uh, today, we're sitting with Juana Lombard, who is running for a magistrate court judge. Juana is a lifelong resident of New Orleans who's been practicing law for over 20 years. Juana was a former staff attorney for the Orleans Parish Indigent Defender Program, as well as the Capital Defense Project of Southeast Louisiana. She served as an actual magistrate commissioner in criminal magistrate court in Orleans Parish through 2016. Throughout her legal career, she has owned and operated a law firm where she's handled a variety of cases, including the landmark, landmark case that dealt with the hundreds, if not thousands of teachers who were fired unjustly after Hurricane Katrina. Juana most recently served as the commissioner of Louisiana Alcohol and Tobacco Control for Governor Edwards from 2016 through 2019. During her tenure at ATC, Juana worked with First Lady Donna Edwards to create a human trafficking task force and an awareness program and was a frequent guest lecturer in front of community and faith-based leaders. Juana is a graduate of Xavier Prep, Loyola University, and Loyola School of Law. She's also a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority and a board member of Girl Scouts of Southeast Louisiana. She is married to Darren Lombard, and they have five children and two grandchildren, and you are much too young to be a grandmother. Put that out there, Juana. Well, let's blame my having children rather early so <laughs> we have a 33 year old well um, there, you, there you go thanks though <laughs> thanks though on the, the two y'all to be a grandmother theory <laughs> um, so anyway um I'm what, what, let's get started thank you for welcoming me on to the show well let's get started the first question is why do you want to be a criminal court judge why do you want to be the magistrate court judge let me ask that more particularly because for people who don't know a criminal court judge gets to hear a fully developed case. A magistrate court judge, I used to serve in that section, you get to see the person right when they're arrested, right Correct. when they first touch the system. So why do you want to be that person who's dealing with drama at 2 a.m. in the morning when someone shows up with a warrant? Well, <laughs> I've already been that person to an extent. I did. Uh, I was a magistrate commissioner for five years. I spent, as you know, JP, most of my career in the criminal justice system. When you were a magistrate public defender, I was a trial section public defender. And years ago, I ran for judge in a trial section. It was not until I got to work in magistrate day in and day out that I really saw the impact that the magistrate has from the very beginning. Because when I was a trial attorney, I used to often complain that bail used as a mechanism to force a plea. And so when I would be in the trial section arguing that somebody had been in jail for four months already and didn't have a trial date and their bond should be reduced or they should be like go, I often had clients that would plea against my advice as an attorney because they were tired of sitting in jail. But I now realize that in magistrate, if we do the work properly up front, we can avoid that by using alternative bail methods, by letting um, low-level drug offenders out on a drug court program with pretrial supervision, 
they're now on the street. Now they have a chance to fight their case or to make an educated decision on whether they want to plea as opposed to taking a plea because they're tired of sitting in jail. Well, I think, I think that's a, that's a good lead into our next question. Could you kind of give people who don't know you kind of an idea of what your judicial philosophy will be? And I mean, by that, I mean, what do you think your role with a community, what is your role as a judge mean for the community that you represent? Like, what is your philosophy when someone comes in your court, what should they expect? They should expect understanding. They should expect um, knowledge. And, and let me say this, and I know there are a lot of candidates running from out of state. You don't have to be from New Orleans to serve New Orleans. You do, however, have to know New Orleans to serve New Orleans. And so we have to understand that a good judge should know all ins and outs of the city. They should know that the needs in Uptown may not be the needs in New Orleans East, and they may not be the needs in the Lower Ninth Ward. I've grown up here, I've worked here community service for for like you said the teachers for um for indigent defenders and i understand both sides of the coin because i've also worked with victims i've worked with domestic violence victims i've worked with human trafficking victims and so the first thing a judge has to do is be fair and impartial the second thing a judge has to do is hear each case as it comes to them because Every charge is different. Every defendant's circumstances are different. And what I mean by that is you may have a defendant charged with an auto burglary or an auto theft. That's 19 year old that was out during the summertime that got in trouble, has no prior record. And you're gonna handle that defendant differently than you're gonna handle the defendant that has a rap sheet from Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, and Louisiana that shows that he bounces state to state and he becomes a high risk of returning to trial. That's the purposes of pretrial services. We didn't have a pretrial service system in 2010 when I took the bench. I was one of the four judges that went to Kentucky, studied their system, helped the Vera system roll out. And the big advantage now of the pretrial system is they interview beforehand and they give the judges the, the pertinent information. They let us know who's low risk and who's high risk. Before we ever take the bench, we have reports now that help us determine how to fashion a solution to help each person. So each defendant is different, but also we cannot forget, there's a lot of talk right now about reform and reform is definitely needed, but we're in a city filled with violent crime. We cannot forget we have victims everywhere and we can't fashion remedies that put the victims and the public safety back at risk. I think that's, that's, a, that's a fair position. Generally speaking, kind of what are your thoughts about the criminal justice system as a whole? Uh, is it when you look at criminal district court, magistrate and the regular sections, what is your opinion on kind of how they're run currently? Is it well? Is it bad? Is there room for improvement? What do you think? Well, I'm going to go back to the quote I made 14 years ago. The criminal justice system is broken. That's about the best way to describe it. And it's not run consistently. So when I was a magistrate, for example, I, I wanted to employ programs to, pretrial programs to help release more defendants. But I was told that I couldn't because the funding for that was post-trial and that was just the end of it. And I often wondered why isn't anybody making the, taking the steps to be able to do these things pre-trial. Now, luckily our new pretrial services is doing that. But for example, I started out putting people in drug court, the court's drug and was just told flat out, you can't do that because that's not a pretrial program. I think we have to get together to coordinate remedies that work 
consistently because that was a program that had been there that we couldn't use for pretrial defendants. You have to wait till they get a conviction, which makes no sense. Um, similarly, my fellow magistrates and I, a lot of them when I came in, we were ex-defense attorneys. So we were more responsive to the needs of the indigent defender. But we had a judge write a policy to us that told us we could not release anyone going to his section. That's what I mean about inconsistency. If we don't have a consistent program, the magistrate just becomes a band-aid because we can let people out, we can put them in drug court. But if the next judge is gonna turn around and increase their bond and throw them back in jail, we've defeated everything we've just done. And that was something that I faced in the past. And I think with the new DA and the new slate of candidates, I'm hoping that that won't be something I'll face in the future. Well, that's very fair. Let's, let's move on to some of the specific issues that I think voters care the most about in dealing with CJR reform in these different races. What is your position on the cash bail system? What do you think of it currently? And what are some thoughts you have on how to change how we do bail? So the cash bail system obviously has been um, unfairly applied, um, but it is the law. And I think that's what a lot of people are missing. They're getting caught up in what judges are telling them they can do, and you know better than anybody that bail reform is going to be a legislative effort. It cannot be something that one judge does in isolation, and any judge that's promising that is basically misleading the general public. Um, but uh, the things that I've done so far and the things that I'm proposing are the ways that we get around the cash bail system for low-level nonviolent offenders. The reality is if you look, a number of states have tried bail reform. Some have already failed, some have already been rolled back, but the ones that seem to be doing the best are the ones that are going for the presumption that we use non-monetary forms of release for the low-level, low-risk, nonviolent offender. And that's what I, I'm talking about, using pretrial supervision, and letting misdemeanors go. I think that nonviolent misdemeanors, other than your domestic violence and your batteries and your gun charges, there's no need to hold those people in jail at all. In my opinion, they can just be released. All they need is their next court date. Let's face it, if they're convicted, all they're ever gonna get is an, an inactive probation anyway. So why hold them in jail for 60 days to give them inactive probation? Low risk offenders, that's why we now have programs. The other thing though I want is to create a victim services program. I think that in a city this riddled with violent crime to not have victim services through the court system is, is ludicrous to say the least. And so many defendants, and as I've learned through my trafficking work are also victims. We have defendants that come in in wheelchairs because they've already been shot. So they're suffering from trauma. We have prostitution and theft defendants coming in that are actually human trafficking victims. We have, to, we have to incorporate victim services and victim screening into the pretrial process. But I think, and my, my other big thing is I wanna create a pre-diversion program. The diversion program has consistently been used by the district attorneys to favor a select few. I've talked to actually some of the leading DA candidates. They're all talking about expanding diversion. And they, you know, two of the three have openly committed and said, you know, if you get elected and I get elected, I am more than willing to let you start diversion day one in magistrate court. It helps me with the screening process and it'll feed straight into my program. By creating programs like that, we take whole segments of the jail population out of jail, make them immediately eligible for release. The big issue though becomes when we talk about bail reform, A, I think I'm the best candidate to work on it because I've got the 
12 legislative sessions under my belt now and I know how to push <laughs> bills and rally bills and you yourself help push a bill with me. Right. But B, no matter what we do, we have to still account for the violent crime problem in New Orleans. And, you know, I've heard my opponent at some point say, well, I'm just going to set a nominal bond on violent criminals. A hundred dollar bond on a violent criminal is not the solution that New Orleans needs. Maybe we have to do a, a modified quasi system. Maybe we get rid of money bail on the low level probatable offenses and we keep some system in place on the violent offenses because I don't want to go to a federal system. You've worked in federal court. Federal is detention versus release. Problem with that system, as you know better than anybody, is there's a whole lot of people in federal jail that would be eligible for at least a bond under state. I worked in the federal system as a CGA attorney for six years. I never had one single client that they deemed eligible for release, not one. So, you know, I mean, it's a complex long-term problem, you know that, but my thought would be that we need to attack the, and make the alteration to the bail system first on the people that don't need to be held in jail and are not a danger to society. That's my first step in reform. And the second step is going to take everybody. It's going to take the city council, the legislature, the mayor, probably the governor's executive pack team pushing it package and, um, and the court system. No, I mean, I think I, it's, it's, it's a very complex problem with not an easy solution. And I think that attacking it in multiple tiers is kind of the way to make a long-term solution. Now, a couple other issues, admittedly, some of these aren't going to be ones that you necessarily deal with at magistrate court, but I think they're kind of part of the CJR kind of consideration. Uh, what's your position on mandatory minimums? I've always had an issue with mandatory minimums because A, they're again, misapplied. You know, I've been down there for a long time. I've already gone through three days. Here's the problem with the mandatory minimum. And I saw it and I'll give you the prime example, gun and drugs. So you get caught with a gun and drugs. It's a five year story minimum. Here's your problem. You could be driving your father's car. Well, not you, but you know, a 20 year old could be driving your father's sister, brother's car, the guns under the seat. They have weed or they have some Xanax they borrowed from a friend or they have, you know, Adderall that they borrowed from a friend. Now they've got a schedule four or a legend drug and a gun and they're looking at a five year mandatory minimum and the judge cannot control that charge. So your DA picks and chooses. If he feels like it, he can um, break the charge. And I've seen him do it time and time again for a select few and charge them individually with the gun charge and the drug charge, which takes the gun charge to a misdemeanor and the drug charge to a felony or a misdemeanor, depending on the drugs. But if they choose not to, then this kid is looking at a five-year mandatory minimum and there's no way around it because we can't, as a judge, we can break the charge, but the DA can reinstate it. That's my problem with mandatory minimums is that I think they, they apply to too many charges that they shouldn't apply to. Number one, I think they have always been misused number two and you know I came in back when you know certain charges were mandatory life when I started working down there distribution of heroin was automatic life whereas distribution of cocaine was five years so I think that is just a classic example of how mandatory minimums are misused and then mandatory minimums tied back into the bail system because all the crimes that face mandatory minimums are not eligible for release unless the magistrate just finds no probable cause for the charge. And so I think that's one statute that has to be 
you know, taken out of the hands of the DAs and put into the hands of the judges. That's why they elect us. We, we understand sentencing and bail and we do it every day. You know, not we, I'm not saying I'm pre-elected, but when I was a magistrate, I did it every day. And I think that the discretion should lie with the court on that, not with the DA's office. No, I mean, it's a really important position because I'll tell you in my time working with then representative Richmond, who's now Congressman Richmond, we only had mandatory minimums for heroin. I want to say for, I think it was a four year period before we finally realized it was stupid and we yanked it, but <laughs> we still have mandatory heroin lifers who are still in jail, who during that window when heroin, it was a window where possession of heroin was life in prison. Okay. Now you're the one breaking up. Yeah. Now I'm losing you. You're breaking up. Okay. Can you hear me now? Okay. Yeah. So there was a period this was before my time where uh, possession of heroin was mandatory life. And even though the legislature came back within a two year period and said, no, 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 no. We're ending that. We're stopping it. We still have people in jail serving life for heroin simply because the law was broken for a two year period. A great example, like you said, of mandatory minimums, when you have mandatory minimums, even if the legislature gets it wrong, a judge can't fix it because once the law is X, you have to apply it. And as you said, as a someone who's lived it, some of the most effective advocates we have in Baton Rouge are when judges show up and they go, let me tell you a story. And I mean, that that's a very powerful point. Okay, a couple of other quick things. What's your position on the death penalty? Admittedly, the magistrate judge has nothing to do with the death penalty, but it's something people generally want to hear from judges talk about. Okay, well, two things. One, I agree with you on the mandatory minimum issue. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can you fine. Okay, on the mandatory minimum issue. And that's what people have to realize too. When we talk about doing our full reform package, we have to make sure that we make some of these things retroactive because there are so many people in jail for life on the old triple offender bill. There's so many people still in jail on the, uh, on the, heroin uh, life bill. And there's so many people still in jail on the fabulous bill that you just pushed in. And the governor and our executive team was a part of supporting that the unanimous jury. Do you know how many I didn't I don't like to think I lost many trials, but most of the trials I lost, I lost on a non unanimous jury in my days in the public defender's office. I think I can I think I only ever had two unanimous juries in the entire time that I tried cases in criminal court. So think of all those people that are still in there and they're gonna stay in there. You've done fabulous work going forward, but unless somebody comes back and challenges that, nobody's gonna take them out. And so it, you know, it really, you know, takes me, and some of them have already served their time. They may be out, but they may have already done five, five, 10 years on a non-unanimous jury and they don't ever get that time back. On the death penalty, I've always been opposed to the death penalty. I actually wrote a philosophy paper on it way back many, many moons ago, and I'm not going to say the year, when I was still at Loyola University, um, we had a religious philosophy class, and I wrote um, on my objection to the death penalty. It's similar to the my other objection. I've just seen it unfairly applied over the years. Now, New Orleans rarely gives the death penalty. We are actually in one of the jurisdictions that rarely actually give the death penalty, but around the rest of the state they do, and it's often unfairly applied. And my years of working in the Capital Defense Project taught me something else. Again, of all my defendants that are represented, 
only one has ever kind of made me think, mm, maybe this person doesn't need to be here with us anymore. <laughs> and, the reason, and the reason it's only ever one is because every one of my other defendants had serious underlying problems. They had serious mental health issues that had gone untreated until unfortunately the day had come when they were looking at a first degree murder charge. I had one client and I talk about him all the time. This guy had frontal lobe damage from being thrown off or falling off a balcony as a young child. Yes, in the early days, he got the medical treatment he needed. And then he was just cut loose. He was not getting any uh, mental health treatment. He wasn't getting any medical treatment for his condition. Now, by the time he got to me, he was charged with killing four people. So it's too late to reset the clock then. It's too late to go back and say, um, wait, this guy really needs mental health treatment because now you have the families of four victims saying, you know, I don't care, I've lost my loved one. My point is, that's the reason I'm not, I, that's another reason that I'm against the death penalty. It's just unfair to me to kill someone who really needed our help long before they became a killer and society turned their back on them. Or in one case, I got somebody off a of death row because the kid's IQ was such that um, it, he literally couldn't be executed. That's how low his IQ was. But if it wasn't for the work of our team doing, going back and pulling all his childhood records, um, you know, we'd have never gotten that out. But again, by the time we got that out, he was charged with murder. So no, they're not going to execute him, but he's going to sit in jail for the rest of his life. Yeah. All right. Um, judicial activism. Uh, obviously, they're kind of two schools of thought. Usually when someone mentions that term, they're thinking about judges who kind of make their own law when they see things going in front of them. There's also the counter argument of when judges see the law, should they be constrained by case law or should they be allowed to interpret the law as they believe it is written? Are, do you can, what's your position on judicial activism? Do you think judges should, should, should be empowered to pursue justice within the law? Or do you think judges should have the freedom to kind of just do what they think is fair? I'd love to say that we have the, we should have the freedom to do what we think is fair, but by rule we're being elected to uphold the law. Right. Um, so I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out ways to wiggle within the law to do things that we can do, which is kind of what I'm talking about now, like a pre-diversion program, pre-trial supervision, creating victim services while still adhering to the law. So for example, there's a, a, a list of, of crimes, as you know, under 14.2 that are not allowed bail. Right. I mean, they're not allowed a release. And then a lot of those victims, a lot of those defendants are poor. So what I used to get a lot of times was what they consider simple robbery, which was the kids in the French Quarter snatching the cell phones. Remember when that was the thing? They would right. snatch cell phones or they run in, they walk past the bar and snatch the purse off the back of the chair. Well, right. while you don't see that as a crime of violence under the law, it is a crime of violence. So that meant that if that child was poor, I could not release that child on um, an ROR. So I used to do stuff sometimes like take commercial, I mean, personal surety bonds on stuff like 10-year-old cars. The rule is 
you have to be able to put up some collateral. Now, you and I both know that 10-year-old car probably isn't worth more than $3,000, but this is a mom trying to get her 19-year-old out of jail. And are we ever going to go as the court and take our car? No, but by letting her sign that, it allows the release of that child. Or I used to use the ankle monitoring system. This was back when it was run by the sheriff's office before it was tainted. I found that was a good system for people under 14.2 because technically home incarceration is still considered incarceration. So when you got kids that are still in school or, or men that have a job and a family, you put them on the ankle bracelet, you give them a zone, they can still go to work, they can still go to school, they can still go if it's a, a teenager, see their girlfriend, but they have a curfew. They have a zone. If their problem is they're committing crime in the French Quarter, you keep them out of the French Quarter. And I think, but still, I would have to say that's really still working within the law because the danger of coming completely around the law is appeal. Right. Because, you know, if, if I do something that's completely outside the law and the DA appeals me, Fourth Circuit's going to overturn me. Right. It is what it is. I think, I think that's fair. Well, the last uh, policy question is, we hear this term all the time of reform candidate. I'm a reform candidate. I'm not a reform candidate, whatever. Do you consider yourself a reform candidate? And if so, why? I consider myself a reform candidate because I've been saying this. Is it, I was saying, I was talking about reforms before reforms were the popular topic and the buzzword. I mean, everyone's talking about reform this year, but you remember, and I think you supported me when I ran against Lori White 13 years right. ago, I was saying then that we needed alternative bail methods. We needed alternative sentencing methods. Those are all reforms, just because you don't use the word reform. That's an actual plan for reform that I still plan to put in place. And I plan to tie into my pre-diversion program. I've been saying we should be using GEDs and apprenticeships as sentencing methods instead of loan probations and incarceration for low-level crimes. Those are all reforms. So I definitely consider myself a reform candidate. And for the past four years, I have been working with the governor as part of the cabinet, and we've worked on a number of, of reforms, including criminal justice reforms. Some passed, some didn't. I even tried with you to reform um, the status of ex offenders as far as their jobs go. You know, I tried to change the alcohol law so that, the, that ex-offenders could that own and operate bars and restaurants and so that they could manage bars and restaurants because a lot of people don't know there's a law out there now that says they can't do that for 10 years after they're released. Um, so yeah, I, re I made reforms in the alcohol industry. Um, I worked to help bring alcohol delivery here. And some people love that, some people don't, but I worked on it. I worked with the, the, the head of the, I mean, the, the chair now of the house to help legalize CBD. Again, some people may like it, some people may not, but we changed an industry. We took something that was a criminal offense that people wanted, like the use of CBD and took it out of the criminal code and made it available for the public. I've always worked on reform, both criminal justice, alcohol, teacher pay, pay raise. I mean, I, I consider myself a reform candidate and I've been talking about reform long before it became a popular buzzword. Okay, a uh, couple other things. So. What's it like campaigning during COVID? <laughs> it is a different world. And it's a different world for me because I'm a people person and I like to get out. I like to touch people. You know, when I was ATC commissioner, I traveled around the state giving speeches and doing townhouse just to make sure people understood the laws. Um, 
it's so me not, not being able to get out and shake hands and touch people is different. Um, and even when you are out, you know, it's weird to have people say, let me take a picture of your push card because, you know, I don't want to take it. Like, I don't want to touch <laughs> what you just touched. And they're like, you know, they're polite about it, but it's, it's weird. And we do a lot of Zoom and a lot of um, virtual, but it's not, it's, it's different for me. And then the other thing though, is I think because we have so much Zoom and virtual, in some ways it's harder because people don't understand time constraints anymore. They feel like like I had a huge endorsement interview debate one night and my time was like 7.45 to 8.15, I think. So now you've, you've you know, you've prepped and I all day and someone else said, can you do a Zoom with me at 8.30? At I'm like, I'm still decompressing from a 30 minute <laughs> debate with my opponent. You know, because of virtual, they don't get the, they don't. They don't give you the same time constraints. They literally feel you can be fifty places in a day. It's sort. It's sort of like the moment that your employer knows they can text you. You never leave work. Um. And this. Yeah. This is. This is the. The really the well, last. Well, that was like during COVID when I was still working. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's but last question, and this is keep it clean. But why are you more qualified than your opponent? I'm more qualified than my opponent because a I'm well rounded. Uh, my opponent has only ever done one thing in his life, and he does not um, have any real true concern or plan for the victims unless he came up with one this week because we've been talking for two months and he has never mentioned victims, victims' rights, victim services, and that's still a key part of the court. Number two, I've done the job. Literally, I've actually done the job because um, the magistrate, the chief magistrate, when they're out of town or sick, they usually have the magistrate commissioners sit for them. So I understand the court that I'm in and the nuances of magistrate court that don't even get talked about, which is like signing warrants, making sure the police aren't just handing you anything, making sure there's really probable cause. The difference between when you sign or don't sign a no-knock warrant, which as we now know is it can go horribly wrong, but I always knew that. That's why I didn't really sign them very liberally. Um, that's the first step of magistrate court. As you say, the signing warrants at two o'clock in the morning, if necessary, that's step one that nobody sees. Then step two is you have to be able to hear each case as it comes and you have to be able to look at the rights of the defendant and still understand the need for public safety and victim safety. And, you know, my opponent's plan doesn't talk about that. When you just go to, I'm letting everybody go, you're not even addressing the recidivism rate, the flight risk, the danger to the community. That's not even in his talking points, but that's a factor for the city of New Orleans, I'm sure. Lastly, I've also spent the last four years up at the legislature, 12 sessions I believe we had in four years, that gives me a unique edge to a, I feel get on the court's legislative committee should I get elected and B, be able to actually go up there and work to push for real reform. I've got experience working with the city council. I've got experience working with the legislators. I'm endorsed by the governor and the mayor. And that's because they've both worked with me extensively. And I think they, they trust me. They trust me to do a good job and to keep my word as far as working um, with reform. I guess the biggest thing is I have a plan, a real plan that I know I can execute. I'm not promising 
I'm not making overarching promises and I'm not promising things that I know I can't deliver. Even my pre-diversion plan, I've already talked to AFL-CIO who is endorsing me and they're willing to take their, their existing apprenticeship programs and move them into magistrate court and into my pre-diversion program if I get elected and, and you know, and, and that gives a person a whole different change. My goal is to not just change the bail system, but to change the conviction rate and get some of these people who are first offenders from ever getting a conviction. That's how we really make a change in society. I think that's a, oh, that's a very- And, and I'm a community servant. I'm sorry, I have to say <laughs> I went to prep. I'm an AKA. I consistently have worked um, for the community from back to school drives to toy giveaways to turkey giveaways to mentoring young people I was just talking to young dancers in the ninth ward the other day I mean when I was a magistrate even when I was a lawyer I always went and spoke in schools at community service events um, I think in order to be a good public servant you have to first be a good community servant that's all very good points. Is there anything else you want to add for the voters to consider when they're looking at you on November 3rd? My number is 99 on the ballot. My name is Juana Marine Lombard. You have to come way down the ballot. I'm all the way above the DA's race, but I really humbly ask for your prayers and your vote on November 3rd. And you have Twitter or a website or anything you want to put oh, out? Yeah. My website is juanamarinelombard.com. My Facebook page is elect Juana Lombard and my Instagram page is Juana Lombard, the number four judge. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you working with me with this new technology and all the challenges it brings. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you on the campaign trail virtually six to six to 12 feet apart. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Bye-bye.